Support for Louisiana Eats comes from Zatarain's Crab Boil. Crawfish season is winding down, but there's still time to boil. Learn how from Zatarain's Dr. Boyle himself. Visit our podcast page at poppytooker.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. This week, we're celebrating the 8th anniversary of Louisiana Eats' debut. Back in 2010, WWNO, the NPR affiliate where it all began, took a gamble with their very first locally produced show, Louisiana Eats. Well, with distribution across the state on WRKF, KRVS, and Red River Radio, five Press Club Awards, and three National Taste Awards later, I'd venture to say that was a good gamble, and we're grateful. On this week's show, we're throwing ourselves a birthday party, and to celebrate, we're remembering our favorite moments from the last eight years. We've interviewed newcomers and culinary legends, visited everywhere from Paris to Cuba, and dedicated entire episodes to topics ranging from breakfast to addiction. There's just too much to put into a one-hour show, so we've picked a handful of our favorites to share with you. Light the candles and get out the hats and horns. We're getting ready to celebrate on this week's Louisiana Eats. The first episode of Louisiana Eats broadcast on June 9, 2010. That year also marked the 125th anniversary of New Orleans Streetcar Line. For the very first time, the crew went out into the field to produce a piece on location by taking a streetcar ride with historian Michael Mazel Nelson. In his research, Michael definitively proved that it was during the streetcar strikes of 1929 what was once known as a loaf became our iconic poor boy sandwich. Michael championed the poor boy loaf with such passion that in 2004, he helped form the Poor Boy Preservation Society, a group that later began the annual Oak Street Poor Boy Festival. Let's ride that streetcar with Michael again, one more time. Well, there were a lot of stories about the streetcar strike, and I heard those, but there are other stories, too, about how the Poor Boy Sandwich got its name. But I started to look into it just to to try and see if I might find some evidence, and I stumbled across a letter from the Martin brothers, who had a coffee stand and restaurant in the French market. And it was among many letters from businesses, uh, coffee companies, furniture stores, people who were donating goods and services on behalf of the strikers in 1929. But then I started to look at some of the menus, and I wanted to see when did the term po' boy or poor boy start to appear on the menus. And of course, old-time New Orleanians remember loaves. Sometimes you'll, you'll still see that on, uh, on menus, loaves for the French bread sandwiches. So you don't see that occurring until the early 1930s. So it is something that develops out of there. Now, 
It's the term poor boy and sandwich together. That's what happens after the strike. Streetcars were commonly used for food delivery. So how did that work? Well, it worked in a, a couple of ways. One, if somebody placed an order for groceries down the line, uh, the grocer might come out, put a you know small box or bag of groceries, and offer a small tip, a cup of coffee or gum or cigarettes for the motorman and, and the conductor to, to stop at a certain point. There'd be someone waiting down the line. Pharmacists did the same thing if there was a special order and somebody needed some medicine right away. So it was sort of a, uh, a delivery service that uh, everyone might be able to use and it was you know, uh, just part of the, the charm of the streetcar. Was food ever sold on the streetcars? It was in sort of strange circumstances. At the end of the magazine line, I have a wonderful story collected from a, a conductorette who spoke of people coming over from the Batchers, some of the, the squatters who lived close to Auburn Park, and they might carry catfish through the gills and board the streetcar briefly and try and make a sale. They, and in a sense, it's kind of like a, a mini or a micro market. At the end of the line, people coming home from work, you might have people who are trying to sell produce from their garden, catfish that have been caught in the river. So the most likely thing you'd see on the streetcar would be the newspaper boys who are allowed to board, ride for two blocks, get off, and then board again, the car going in the opposite direction. So you would see food that would be sold nearby, but you weren't supposed to eat on the streetcar. Okay, no eating on the streetcar, but just caught almost wiggling catfish okay. Uh, was, was there any food that was banned on the streetcar? Yeah, this is one of my favorite stories. I was interviewing uh, Superintendent Johnson, and Mr. Johnson remembers that there was a regulation banning any sort of crawfish being brought onto the streetcar. You could bring crabs, you could bring, uh, and then again, these could be live crabs caught out at West End if you're catching the West End car to go back to town. You could bring shrimp but you are not allowed to bring crawfish. And I asked him about that, and his memory is that there was fear of some virus that uh, caused the health department to say, no crawfish. And yet he remembers that you'd have all kinds of you know, odors and water dripping from the baskets of crabs that were allowed on the car, but never any crawfish. Now, the motorman had some special privileges when it came to transporting food, I think. Yes, actually, one thing would happen um, and this again is an example of how most of the streetcar barns, and there were you know five of them at one point uh, during the height of, of street railways, you would live in the neighborhood and if someone was working an evening shift, either his wife or sometimes his entire family or one of his children would bring uh, some sort of hot meal and perhaps ride with their father going around the belt and get a chance to spend some time even while he was at work. Well, that brings a whole new reality to the family dinner table. That That is a charming thing. A any other animals? Well, one of my favorite stories, too, is uh, connected to the St. Claude line. And so, again, this would take people into St. Bernard Parish. And at times, some of the men would make deals with uh, people who are raising cows and cattle. And in certain cases, if they had a big party, they might uh, purchase a, a veal calf and it would be living, they'd uh, tie it up and they'd stick it under the longitudinal or beauty seats that people see at the very front, those long benches. And so they would actually uh, take the calf back into the city and they might take it to uh, one of the neighborhood butchers and then you know, uh, essentially split the, uh, split the calf up. And 
Uh, so that's one of the, the more bizarre examples of, of food on the streetcar. Still a living, breathing calf. Uh, you know, sometimes making sounds under the beauty seat. And the <laughs> That's a wonderful story. Michael, thank you so much for sharing your streetcar food stories with us on Louisiana Eat. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. That streetcar ride was one of my favorite moments from our first year, and part of what inspired me to write the book, Louisiana Eats, The People, The Food, and Their Stories which was published in the fall of 2013. Sadly, Michael Mazel Nelson, poor boy historian and champion, passed away in 2014. But his legacy lives on today with every streetcar ride and in every poor boy sandwich. voodoo priestess Miriam Chamani was a personal friend long before Louisiana Eats began. Naturally, I invited priestess Miriam to join us in an early episode where she talked about the magic of herbs and told our fortune by throwing the bones. Well, the spiritual nature of herbs is, is what made the peoples have uh, something natural to rely on when there were discomfort in their life, health, and the environment, and for fumigation, for having some aroma to eradicate the unsettled energy that the peoples of the 1800 was going through. And equally today, people need them for their emotional stresses. And that day, it was like the true uh, natural pharmaceutical. It was what was all natural. What are some of the herbs that you use, and what do you use them for? Well, the herbs I use come in many multiple choices, but I do have today, uh, according to the different order or uh, the different ideas or, or that is taking place at the time, whether it's people's health or their love life problems and and over the years, looking at the uh, magical expression of the African peoples who practice what we call voodoo, or managing their life, their luck, and and finding something to improve their fortune. So I have, uh, for love life, which is sometimes top over the health. <laughs> for many people, you're right, that yeah. comes first. So it's amazing. You can use right out of your uh, kitchen. Uh, there is uh, jasmine. You can have lavender or cinnamon. Ginger is a big herb that can be used to improve or empower your love. Uh, what about luck and money? What would you use? Oh, luck and money. And many people's uh, walk with the John the Conqueror root in their pocket. And along with uh, many other herbs, they have uh, a lovish root. And and I was in Georgia, and they call it the bohawk. Oh. Uh, so if you were going to the casino, you'd put the John the Conqueror root in your pocket. Exactly. <laughs> and, and then many people are probably not familiar with the herb or root that called uh, devil shoestring. What is that? <laughs> it's like a, a wood. It could come from the limb, or but it also have a, like a vine. 
that you can make your good luck hand, you can make your powerful lucky hand, and you can equally carry it with you uh, for gambling or or just carry it with you if, even if you got to deal with court situation. Now, what is a mojo bag, and why would someone need one? Well, mojo bag is unique because it's remind you that you don't have to have fears or worries. It's something to remind you that you got your luck. Many times people are, are not able to just project with their mind, but they need a little tool to carry with them to help them to arrive with some trust and security in their mind of achieving or what they want to achieve for their successes. Well, Miriam, I see that you brought one of my favorite of your little bags with you to the studio today. Uh, What's in the bag you've got there? Oh, it's like rattling those bones. Well, I was wondering if maybe you would rattle the bones for us and see how things are looking for us here at Louisiana Eats. Just many times travelers will be going in and out of the the villages and they want to get a sense of direction. What's up and what's ahead of us now, my brother? And the old African priest will be sitting there and he'd just be rattling his bones and and he well, why don't you just sit down here with me for a moment? so that you can see your wits before you get farther on up the road. And then the African priest will just, ah, my brother, I think you should uh, delay for a moment and maybe just sleep over here with me through the night. And then when you rise in the morning, then your future look bright and you can go forward on your way. So Miriam, tell us, you think we're on the right track here at Louisiana Eats? I believe that you're on a very good uh, wave of energy, and it's the time, and and everything is coming now that we have reassembled, and restructuring our life is a great deal. But what is the greatest of the deal? Food is the substance that made us feel very assured that we could stand up and make this restructuring be in a greater, effective way. And food is the thing that first brought us together, and how exciting that it's brought us back together again. Exactly. Miriam, thank you so much for coming in to share your time and your wisdom with us here today. It is always a pleasure. That was Priestess Miriam Tremani of New Orleans Voodoo Spiritual Temple. Miriam is so magical that she too was included in my Louisiana Eats book back in 2013. Photographer David Spielman took portraits of each chapter's subjects, so you can see her there at her altar in the temple, in all of her glory. In 2014, the Louisiana Library Association honored Louisiana Eats, the book, with their Literary Award of the Year, so you can still find it in libraries across the state. It's also available in bookstores and at poppytooker.com.
Coming up next, more favorites from the past eight years. Louisiana Eats returns after a short break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Brennan's Restaurant, Breakfast at Brennan's, featuring Chef Slade Rushing's updated classic Creole cuisine breakfast, lunch, dinner, and private events at 417 Royal Street in the historic French Quarter. If you're enjoying this trip down memory lane, we'd love to hear about some of your favorite Louisiana Eats memories, along with any other thoughts or suggestions about the show. We've opened a phone line to take your calls, so you can leave us a message at 504-867-9128 or send us an email to louisianaeats at poppytooker.com. And now, back to the show. For 32 years, Cake Bread Cellars in Napa Valley has gathered a small group of chefs, journalists, and food enthusiasts for an intensive four-day seminar at the American Harvest Workshop. In the fall of 2014, the Louisiana Eats team was invited to participate. This was truly a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience, as no matter who you are, you only get to attend the American Harvest Workshop one time. In this piece, we go into the vineyard to literally harvest the Chardonnay grapes. Let's jump right in. (laughs) We'd been on the bus for about an hour when it pulled into Canaris, California on an overcast Monday morning. The members of the American Harvest Workshop filed out and went searching for coffee and breakfast quietly eating pastries as they waited for their guide, Toby Halkovich, director of vineyard operations at Cake Bread Cellars. The sun was barely up, but it was the end of Toby's day. He'd supervised the overnight grape harvest and was looking a little weary. We started picking here um, about 1 o'clock this morning. We've night picked for several different reasons. This time of year, it's not it's not unusual for the daytime temperatures to be in the 90s, 100 degrees. So the working conditions at night are much better. It's much cooler, We're usually 55, 60 degrees. Uh, so better conditions. The other thing is you saw our truck left a little while ago. Nice thing about that is we can have all this fruit into the winery before it heats up. And so less oxidization, uh, better fruit for better wine. Um, and the other thing is also it's more efficient. If we can start, if we can get the, the fruit up to the winery and they can start loading the presses, Uh, 6, 7 in the morning versus 10, 11, uh, we can get more fruit in through the day, which gives us more flexibility. Uh, It's just a win for everybody. So those are a lot of the reasons why we pick at night. Toby's job requires a lot of skill sets. He's part farmer, part geologist, and even a pretty good weatherman. Directly west of us is the Petaluma Gap. It's a low point in the coastal range. 
and it's actually a straight shot right out to the Pacific Ocean. So that fog kind of comes, it pours right in through here. The fog does get all the way up the valley, uh, which is part of what makes Napa Valley what it is. We get the foggy, cool nights. Um, as it recedes, this is going to be the last area that fog recedes from. And so we're going to stay cooler here. It's usually 5, 10 degrees uh, lower peak temperature during the summer down here versus, say, Calistoga. And so it's perfect for growing Chardonnay. Guiding us around the vineyard, however, wasn't the only thing Toby had in mind that morning. We're going to make a little competition out of uh, picking the grapes and see how quickly uh, we can get through a ton of Chardonnay. Um, so we do this every year. Usually do Pinot. Um, Pinot clusters are much smaller, so these guys get a little bit of a break and that the uh, Chardonnay picks much quicker. So. But we'll see. We'll see. Usually it's always fun to try to put them up against our uh, full-time crew. Um, so they can see how quickly it really goes. Because um, I expect 45 minutes to get this ton uh, with, I don't know, about 30 people here. Typically eight guys will pick a ton in about a half an hour. So they'll move pretty quick. As we walked through the vineyard, the big green clusters of Chardonnay grapes were impossible to resist. But not all of the grapes were green. Some shriveled dark grapes lay scattered on the ground. Toby explained they were infected with Botrytis. Botrytis is also known as bunch rot. Uh, it's a fungus. It lives on live tissue, so usually if, uh, if a berry breaks, the juice will start to rot. But also any free moisture. Mm. So it does kind of give it a purple, uh, purple appearance. Well, how do you tell if purple grapes have Botrytis? Well, that's the nice thing is typically uh, it's gray when it's active, so you can see it. But... Uh, most red varietals are not susceptible to it because they have thicker skin. Uh, it's primarily the white varietal. And then the other thing is most of the red varietals, we grow in warmer portions of the valley, less free moisture, less of a problem. It's incredible how temperamental grapes are. The climate, the soil, the water, they all determine whether a specific grape will thrive or not. So in 17 miles, we can grow really any varietal grape there is and we can do it very well. When you look at France, you have to grow your whites, your Pinot and Burgundy. In Bordeaux you see your you know your Cabernet and your Merlot. So you're you've got several hundred miles apart. Here we can do it within 15 miles. And actually it's not uncommon to see one vineyard and have both Chardonnay and Cabernet on the same vineyard. We're pretty blessed in that regard. A green tractor with three empty bins was waiting at the end of the aisle. That was our task for the morning, to harvest enough grapes to fill those bins. I'm gonna pass out the knives. Let's uh, grab one and pass it along. After speaking with the tractor's driver, Toby produced a basket of knives with scary curved blades. Remember, don't bring this on the plane as a carry-on. <laughs> Since most of us had never done this before, Toby explained we should be looking for the rachis, the small intersection between the vine and stem of a grape cluster. What you want to do is you want to cut the rachis kind of right where it's still green. The best way to cut is to get the, the knife behind the rachis and then roll it towards you, just like that. It's kind of a circular motion. You don't want to just get in there and yank back, okay? Okay. What I want you to do is I want you to count off. One, two. Okay, so. One. Two. 
As the sun started to come out, we broke up into two teams and got one last safety talk from Toby. So the big things though, one person per vine, everybody should be working from the east side of the vine or the open side of the vine. Always know where your hand is, always know where your buddy's hands are. Is everybody ready? Yes. One All right. Per vine. We did give you orange gloves, so if there is an accident, You'll see the blood come through the glove. No, but but, <laughs> but if, if the, the finger does get detached, it's much easier to see with an orange glove on. <laughs> okay, ones over here. All right, ones, all right, ones. Yeah. I never figured out if Toby was joking or not, but maybe that was for the best. Later, I asked him about using trimming shears instead, but Toby said they're actually more dangerous. I believed Toby, but I knew the minute I had that blade in my hand, this was not going to be easy. I'm not getting it, man. This is really hard. It's hard and it's frightening because of this curved blade. I keep distinctly having this sensation I'm going to stab myself in the chest. I've never been so tentative with a knife. I'm usually really comfortable with knives, but this is frightening to me. <laughs> In fact, the only person who looked comfortable was Boston chef Daniel Bruce, who had done this before. It's not my first. It's not my first pick. He and teammate Lisa M. quickly got into a groove. I'm cherry picking. <laughs> it's called cherry picking, so you pick the best crosses. That's right. I think you're ready to go. What do you think? Yep. Okay. Here you come back. My second <laughs> Look at this. Here, will you take that knife away from oh, okay, me? Okay, good. Look at this, three buckets, two, a few clusters over there. As the large bins began to fill up, it became clear that Team One had an unfair advantage. 20 minutes later, I was still having a hard time. I mean, the grapes are gorgeous, it's really hard to do. I am not going to give up my radio career for grape picking. Look at this, Michael. Look at, we're almost there. <laughs> Within a half hour, both bins were full. Our crew of 30 had done well, but nobody was going to be hired on for the grape harvest. Uh, this group, they did great compared to most groups. Uh, number one, everybody was safe. Everybody came out with uh, all their fingers. We didn't lose anybody in terms of nobody's out wandering around the vineyard at this point. I think we've got everyone accounted for. Uh, in terms of volume, they did great right, right in there. We took a group picture, happily returned our knives, and that ended our careers as grape harvesters. Yeah. I'm Poppy Tooker, and this is Louisiana Eats. When Irish natives Pauline and Stephen Patterson decided to visit New Orleans in 1990, they weren't intending to stay very long. But upon arrival, things quickly changed. It wasn't long before the Pattersons set down roots in the city and opened a popular Irish pub in mid-city called Finn McCool's. In 2014, Pauline and Stephen shared their fascinating story. I had read A Streetcar Named Desire, and I'd wanted to see where it was set. And we 
came here, we worked in Wildwood, New Jersey for a couple of summers and one summer we made a bit of extra money that we could afford to travel and we came down to see where Streetcar Named Desire was set. And we were only supposed to stay for a couple of days and then work our way back up the coast and then fly back to Ireland. And what we ended up doing was staying in New Orleans the entire two weeks, flying back home, finishing college and flying straight back out. We just fell in love with how friendly New Orleanians are and the food is amazing. So once we went back to Ireland, our whole focus was just getting ready for our return to New Orleans. And we knew that we wanted to come back here. And uh, the moment... Pauline finished her college. She didn't even stay for her graduation. Yeah, I just we made are, sure that I'd passed. Whenever <laughs> yes, she, look. Yeah, whenever they told her she, she'd got her degree in art, um, we basically got on a plane, two rucksacks and as much you know cash as we could get, a couple hundred bucks each, came to New Orleans wow. and lived in the French Quarter for the first couple of years. We got married here. Yeah. Um, then uh, just started to build a life. Obviously, we both worked in bars, but I was working at Mix and a group of my regulars came in and they were having a great time. I was telling them jokes, pouring them drinks. And then after about the fourth drink, one of the men called me over and said, can I ask you a personal question? And I said, yeah, go ahead. And he said, what's a middle-aged woman like yourself still bartending for? Oh, that's and charming. And I was 35. <laughs> I went, are you joking me? So I realised at some level, fellas have a longer shelf life as a bartender than women do, which mm. is unfortunate. So after staring at myself in the mirror for about two weeks solid, going, why is he calling me middle-aged? Um, I decided to go into real estate. That was something that you could do sort of part-time and I could still keep the bartending job. So I became a real estate agent with Ladder and Bloom and I was tasked to find one of my clients, a bar. He specifically wanted to buy Mix. So I approached the owner of Mix and he went, never, I'm never selling. But I know another bar that's for sale. So why don't you approach that person? So I brought my client to that bar, which is now Finn McCool's. And he said, you couldn't pay me to buy this bar which is a testament to what type of bar it was before we took it <laughs> over. Um, so after long discussion, myself and Stephen and another couple decided we would go go in for it and, and buy it. Yeah, well, whenever we opened the bar in July of 2002 and we wanted to try and differentiate ourselves. We just didn't want to be another watering hole, if you know what I mean. We wanted to be um, a community-led pub that would be an extension of people's living rooms and where they would come to meet other people, come to get work. If they needed help, they would come to Finn McCool's to get help. If um, they wanted to give help. Mm -hmm. It was the original networking place. So you had owned Finn McCool's for three years when Hurricane Katrina happened. So where do you start to rebuild? (laughs) So... We weren't sure if we were going to rebuild, you know, but because uh, nobody knew. Yeah, nobody knew what was going on, and um, but we we got in there and just started, you know, the first day that afternoon, just started taking stuff out. I guess we're into October, towards the end of October, when we started pulling stuff out, and by noon, noon that day, there was probably fifteen or twenty people helping us. Mm. Yeah, customers that have been driving by, people in the neighborhood. They would always drive by and they would say they were saying to us, Oh yeah, we've been driving by for a few days and as soon as we saw the door open we wanted to come in to make sure you guys were coming back. 
And we were saying, well, we're not really sure. You guys come back. And they, and they were saying, well, it was all, well, I'm not really, we won't come back if you aren't coming back. There's no point. So it sort of, you know, it galvanized us. Yeah, it made us. A huge, a, a so much stronger community. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was the point, I guess, when you realize this is our home. You know, we're, we are Irish. We grew up in Ireland. We'll always be Irish. But that was whenever we realized New Orleans was home for us. So after we got everything out of the bar and it was ready now to be um, insulated and sheetrocked and we decided to throw a party. So we invited everybody and we had gone out to Sam's and we got a load of beer and a load of food and we set everything up, called everyone, everybody arrived and it was so cathartic and people were crying and hugging each other and, and they were like, oh, we have to do this every week, you know, we have to get to... And when everybody left, we had more beer and food than when we started. It was like the uh, New Orleans version of the loaves and the fishes. So we did it five more times before we actually opened on St. Patrick's Day of 2006. But it was a great way to restart restart a new beginning let everybody know that the Irish were still here in New Orleans and this was our day still and you know we wanted to celebrate and celebrate the rebirth of New Orleans that was Pauline and Stephen Patterson in 2014 though they sold fins in 2016 they continued to maintain a presence in New Orleans with their bar and art gallery Treo on Tulane Avenue. Which quiz question has stuck in your mind for the past eight years? Stay tuned, and we'll tell you about one particular listener's answer when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, and from French Market Coffee. French Market Coffee's premium blended beans are locally roasted in small batches, creating a coffee that can only be called New Orleans Bold. This week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. Which quiz question has stuck in your mind for the past eight years? Last week, when we were taping at the Audubon Zoo for an upcoming episode of Louisiana Eats, Dominique Fletus, one of the zookeepers there, told me her favorite quiz question, one she often retells, is... What kind of duck did the 19th century Catholic Creoles believe they could eat during the traditional Lenten fast? The answer is pooldew, a duck that lives mostly on the water and almost exclusively eats fish. That may seem a bit far-fetched to you, but back in 2013, New Orleans Archbishop Gregory Amon declared that alligator could also be considered fish and eaten without sin during the Lenten fasting. Boy, it's good to be a Catholic in southern Louisiana. I'm Poppy Tooker, and according to Catholic law, pooldew and alligator make for good Louisiana eats. 
If you stop into a bar in Louisiana, there's a good chance you'll find a tap pouring beer from Great Raft Brewing. The Shreveport-based company sold its first beer in October 2013, making it the first brewery to sell beer in the Shreveport-Bossier City area since Prohibition. Louisiana Eats visited the craft brewery in 2014 to learn all about local regulations, as well as the taste profile of Shreveport's water. Talk to anyone in the spirits industry, and you'll learn that even 80 years later, we're still dealing with the damaging effects of prohibition. As little as two years ago, brewers in Shreveport were still trying to deal with restrictive local laws that dated back before Prohibition. We met City Council Representative Jeff Everson outside of Herbie Case in Shreveport for the lowdown on how Shreveport breweries got caught up with the rest of the state. You know, once we really started hearing from uh, two breweries, one of whom is Great Raft, um, who really took the lead um, on, on a lot of uh, developing the policy necessary to have a full-scale uh, brewery, you know, we started working with them to find out what provisions are there in our local laws that don't allow this. But, and there were quite a few. There hadn't been an, a reason to, to review it in, in a long time. So this gave us that reason, and it gave us that chance to change the laws. Um, so, you know, I think it is an important reminder for all of us to take a look at um, when industries evolve that our laws need to evolve as well. And evolve they did. Great Raft's co-founders Andrew and Lindsay Nations worked with Jeff to help clear out the cobwebs from hundred-year-old regulations, consulting with everyone from police to city planners to fire marshals. By October of 2013, the restrictive zoning regulations were lifted and change could begin. When Great Raft finally had their products uh, available for commercial sale, uh, I, I did get the privilege of buying the first beer produced in Shreveport since Prohibition, and it was a brew that they call Reasonably Corrupt. It's a, a dark brew that has uh, some pretty funny political connotations, but I, uh, I took it as an honor, so <laughs> it, was a, it was a treat. After chatting with Jeff, we had to check this place out. Hey, how are you? This is my first time here. I barely tasted my first sampler of a fruity pale ale called Commotion when the bartender announced a guided tour was about to begin. Hello, welcome to Great Raft. My name is Andrew Nations. We got some folks recording some audio. So this is awkward for me, but whatever. <laughs> well, thank you guys for coming out and taking the tour. What we'll do today is kind of tell you a little bit about what we believe in, in terms of brewing lagers, uh, and kind of walk through the whole process of a typical brew day. Uh, other than that, have fun. Uh, and again, ask questions. I like to talk about beer and drinking beer. Andrew certainly didn't have the appearance of a founder and owner. He had on a baseball cap and was sweating a little bit more than the rest of us, probably because of the hot and humid nature of working in the brewery. But Basically, he just looked like any of the patrons visiting the brewery that busy Saturday afternoon. There were twice as many people lining up for samples in the adjacent tap room as there were on the tour. So the name Great Raft, for those of you who don't know, is a reference to the Great Red River Raft. Back in the 1830s, was basically a, a log jam, but it was 100 miles long. At one point, you could walk across the Red River because it was so dense with logs and debris. That log jam was torn down with snag boats by Henry Miller Shreve, Shreveport's namesake. 
This opened up the Red River as a waterway and led to a period of prosperity for the city. For my wife and I, we really wanted a, uh, a name that resonated with locals and had something to do with local history uh, beside, you know, Lindsay and Andy's Lane Brewery. So that's how kind of we came up with Great Raft. Andrew then explained that Great Raft is classified as a production brewery, which means they can only sell 10% of their production on site. He also explained what it means to be a craft brewery. The key words here are small, independent, and traditional. Small meaning under 6 million barrels a year. Uh, independent meaning we're not owned by some massive conglomerate, Miller Coors, AB, some other out-of-country, out-of-state businessmen. It's just my wife and I and some other local businessmen that have a lot more money than I did. Traditional meaning we use tra traditional ingredients in all of our beer. We only add things in the beer that make it awesome and make it taste great and for the most part traditional. Andrew has a real affinity for German beers. So if you're familiar with Schwarz beers, the black beers with a chocolatey flavor, or light pale ales from the Spaten Brewery, then you'll like Andrew's palate. You won't be alone. Within their first three months of operation, Great Raft exceeded their expectations for the entire first year. We're just trying to keep up uh, at this point. We're mate lager. It's not a fast turnaround. It's not as bad as bourbon, but it's still it's, just, it's still about a month, right? We can't we can't rush that. The beer has to taste the same way every time you have it. Uh, but it's a struggle to keep up with Shreveport. We're very grateful to be working as hard as we are. We're expanding, and we'll get there. Andrew makes about 700 gallons of beer every time they brew, about 40 kegs worth. In his pursuit of quality, he sources the finest ingredients from around the world, but has to use local water to produce his beer. Let's talk about Shreveport water. So Shreveport water is crap. If you guys don't have a Brita filter, please go to Target, drop a 20, invest in your family's future. What that means for us is we, uh, we have to control that, right? So we make light lagers. Like, again, that beer has to taste the same every time you try it. So we use a process called reverse osmosis. The reverse osmosis process strips out the mineral content of the water, allowing Andrew to mimic the flavor profile of any water from around the world. Dublin, Portland, Asheville, San Diego, if I have a water report, we, can, we, can, we have that flexibility. So. Uh, we have different water profiles for our lager, different water profiles for our uh, hoppy beer. But ultimately, in a nutshell, what it means is great control, right? We control our water regardless of what the city's doing, the algae bloom in the summer. Uh, it just gives us that control, and we really need that for, for doing light lagers like we do. On a typical brew day, the head brewer will arrive around 8, and once the water reaches the proper temperature for brewing, he'll drop milled malted barley into a mixer. Here's what happens next. So think about it this way. All we're trying to do in the mash mixer, we're converting the starches to sugars. So if you think about it, we've just added really, really hot water to this uh, malted barley. It's a cereal grain, right? It gets kind of mushy, kind of like oatmeal. Well, I don't want oatmeal. I need somewhat clear sugar water. At this point, it's called a wort, unfermented beer. The wort gets sent through a machine that separates the spent barley from the now-flavored water, and it's on to the next step balancing the beer. Let me get a sip of beer, let's not get crazy here. Then the beer goes into a kettle for an hour-long boil and hops are added to give bitterness to the beer. You'll get different flavors depending on how many hops you add. Hefeweizens won't have many hops, while a double IPA will wallop you in the face with their bitterness. 
Uh, I want to pass around some hops here. This is American Simcoe hops. I very, uh, I love this hop. I can't get a lot of it because it's one of the sexy hops that you can't get. Uh, but really open it up, crack it open. You're trying to get your hands really sticky and smell that resin. The resin is the part that makes it, there's some orange juice in there. There's some uh, orange zest, very tropical. But it really gives you an idea of what that hop is about. So there's different hops that give you onion, mint, spice. There's, there's, I mean, it's an open door. You can do anything you want to with hops. Hops are usually added twice at this stage in the game. The first time for bitterness, the second for aroma. So you ever seen the wine guys holding, like, don't do that because we're beer guys, right? It's very smart because they're getting air into that wine, right? They're getting some of that aroma because they know a large part of what you smell is how you perceive taste. Don't make a show out of it. Again, we're beer guys, but definitely pour your beer into a glass because we need that aroma to taste. Once the hops have been added and the beer is cooled down, it's time for the fermenting to begin. This is when yeast is added to convert the sugars to alcohol. Let's go down here and we'll talk about packaging. If it were up to Andrew, he'd have everyone drink straight out of the tank. No such luck, though. Instead, like many craft breweries in Louisiana, Great Raft cans on site. So we canned all day yesterday. Uh, it was pretty brutal, but we got 600 cases done. So cans for us, I mean, they're better for the environment. I don't think Shreveport even recycles glass, which is crazy. Uh, but uh, cans are kind of a perfect vessel for us. You can take them on the golf course, on the boat particularly in this part of the world, it's best for us. At the tour's conclusion, we toasted Andrew's success with one of his delicious craft brews. I looked around the room and saw people playing a game of beanbag toss, dining at the food trucks out in the parking lot, and smiling over beers with folks they had just met. It made me think about something Jeff Everson had said hours before. I really think that if you want people to move somewhere, stay there, be connected to it, feel a part of it, then you have to get them into the culture of the place. You feel a lot more of a part of your community when you're dining at places or hanging out in places that are telling a part of that story. And, you know, so it's, uh, it's both economically and socially vital. Tours of Great Rafts Brewery are provided regularly on weekends, and flagship beers like Southern Drawl Pale Lager can be found at retailers throughout Louisiana. For more information, visit greatraftbrewing.com. Well, I hope you had a good time at our eighth birthday party. We're here on the air because of you, our listeners, and we're grateful for every single one of you, whether you catch the broadcast or get your Louisiana Eats via podcast. Our podcast listener numbers continue to increase dramatically every month, with over 130,000 of you currently enjoying Louisiana Eats in your own time instead of broadcast time. No matter how you listen, we really want to hear from you. We've opened a phone line so we can take your calls. Leave us a message at 504-867-9128 or send an email to us, louisianaeats at poppytooker.com. And I'd like to take the occasion of this week's anniversary to especially thank our sponsors. Zatarans and Dickie Brennan signed up back in 2010 without as much as a demo tape to listen to before agreeing to come on board.
thanks to them and to all our sponsors, past and present. Over 400 shows later, we couldn't have done it without you. If you or your business would like to join our sponsorship team, we'd love to talk with you. Give us a ring, and we'll get the conversation started. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you missed an episode of Louisiana Eats? Hear today's show or catch up on previous editions anytime online at itsneworleans.com. And if you're not podcasting yet, it's time to subscribe. We've launched an exclusive podcast series, Louisiana Eats Quick Bites, made up of sneak previews of material that hasn't hit the airwaves yet and full-length interviews never heard on the show before. Visit our podcast page at poppytooker.com so you won't miss a single serving of our broadcast or our podcast. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarain's French Market Coffee, Camellia Beans, and Rouse's Markets. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from Dickie Brennan's Steakhouse, a local New Orleans steakhouse serving prime beef and Louisiana Wagyu in New Orleans French Quarter. Original theme music by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to producers Joe Schreiner, Sarah Holtz, and Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Don't forget to find our recipes and see what we're up to at poppytooker.com. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>